here this morning. We're living in troublesome times, aren't we? Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, 
there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as the captain of the Lord of hosts, host of the Lord, am I now come? And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship, and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord of Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thy standest is holy. And Joshua did so. This is uh, this is a chapter that we're reading that uh, the, the Israelites had just crossed over the Jordan River. They just the Lord had parted it miraculously. It was a time when the Jordan River overflowed its banks, and the Lord had commanded the priests to to bear the ark and to go before the children of Israel. And it says as they stepped down, because they had to get from the wilderness to the promised land. They had to get across that river, a whole nation of people. And as the priests stepped down and began to put their foot, it says when their toes touched the water, basically, God dried up the waters. And they caused them from coming upstream to the waters to rise up in a big heap. And they didn't even go across on muddy ground. They went across on dry ground. And, and then the children of Israel, after the ark and the priests passed, then all the nation came across until they were all through passing. Then the Lord let the waters return back to overflow in their banks. And this is where he commanded them to, to set up the 12 pillars, the 12 stones, to be a memorial, one from each tribe of what the Lord had done. If your children ask you one day, what, what mean these 12 stones here by the Jordan River? You tell them that the God, God dried up the Jordan River so that Israel came across on, on dry ground. And so what I want us to look at today, though, what I believe God would have us to look at today from this chapter is verses 8 and 9. Read that again with me. Joshua 15, 8. And it came to pass when they had done circumcising all the people that they abode in their places in the camp till they were made whole or healed. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal. Gilgal. And that's an interesting word. This, this place becomes famous in Scripture because of what happened here. Later, it would be a place, Gilgal, where the, uh, the prophets, it became known as the place of the prophets. And for the, uh, the, the ministry, Samuel was one that made a circuit between three cities, I believe, from year to year. And he would judge in Gilgal. That was one of the places. It's where the stones were set up as a memorial. But the Lord says, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off of you. He marked that as being that time and that place and the word, and they named the place Gilgal. And I, I looked up the word. What does it mean? All these Bible words have meanings. Gal by itself means to roll, like one time just to roll something. Gilgal, they say that the, the, the root of the word is doubled. Gilgal, it means to roll, to roll, to roll, to roll. In other words, to roll away, to keep rolling away. And he says, this is the day that I've rolled away the reproaches of Egypt from off of you. And I think that that's significant. The Lord himself is able to do that. The Lord is able to roll the reproach. We talked in Sunday school about David and his notable sin. You know, a man after God's heart, wonderful, wonderful man of God. God made a covenant with him, but he has this notable sin where he committed adultery and to cover up his sin, he committed murder, and, and yet he was restored unto the Lord. 
the Lord was able to, and only God can do that. You can try to cover up and hide and pretend and put on a, a happy face and pretend like everything's okay, but the only one that can deal with that sin is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who can really deal with it and put it away, rope it away, not just five feet away, okay, like you push a barrel out of the way and it rolls eight or ten feet and stops. Gilgal means to roll away. Roll and roll and roll. The Lord is able to roll the reproaches of his people away. He did that for the nation of Israel, and he does it for those that trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. Reproaches of our lives, things in your life that you're ashamed of, things in your life that you did, the way you lived, and the man or the woman you were before you came to know Christ. And since you've committed, and I've committed since I've come to know Christ, thank the Lord. He doesn't just cover it up somewhere. He rolls it away. He deals with it. All the reproach, all the shame, everything that comes with it. And we have notable sins. Praise God we don't know about each other's sins. You know, like, like we all know about David's sin, for example. It's there in black and white. It's there recorded in the Word of God for history. And yet, thank God everybody doesn't know about all of our sins. But the Lord himself is able to roll away the reproaches of his people far away. Okay? Far away. That's why the word Gilgal, the root of that word is double. It means to roll and roll and roll. It's keeping on going the other direction. For us, y'all, and for any people, the Bible says sin is a reproach. Righteousness exalts a nation. Solomon says in the Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Sin is a reproach. I would say our country right now, besides being in a dangerous place, besides being in a, a dark place, I'm talking about our nation as a whole, not every individual, it, it is under a reproach. We're under a judgment of God. We're under, it doesn't mean God can't spare us. It doesn't mean God can't turn things around. I'm simply saying I believe that our nation, because of our laxity, our laziness, uh, our sin, our worldliness, our godlessness as a whole for, for our country, we're under a reproach. And I want to read this scripture. We heard it in Sunday school, but if you're taking notes, I'm going to read it from Psalm 103, verses 10 through 13. The Bible says he had not dealt with us after our sins. Aren't you glad of that? Sometimes we think God sure is pretty harsh with that sin. We don't know the half of it. He didn't deal with us after our sins. Thank God he didn't. Okay? Thank God he didn't. Yeah, there are consequences for sin. There are temporal consequences for sins of the believer. We're forgiven. And maybe we'll go through something because of our sin and brought it upon our lives. But the sin is washed away and forgiven. There's no eternal consequences for sins that are under the blood. Amen? But he says, He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. The fear of the Lord is a good thing, amen? The, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. The salvation of the Lord is with them that fear him, the Bible says. And by the fear of the Lord, men depart from iniquity and sin. And he rolls our sins away as far as the east is from the west. They're going in opposite directions. 
That's what he's done with my sin. He's taken it and removed it that far from me. And it's still going that way. It's under the blood of Thank Jesus. And I'm going this way under the blood of Jesus. Amen. And, and I thank the Lord he's able to roll away the reproaches of his, of his people. Now, I want to just talk about this for a few minutes this morning before we, we move on. We see the nation of Israel in, in the Bible. We see the nation of Israel in history. And God has chosen them. They're unique people set apart uh, unto the Lord. They're an earthly people. Okay, they have to have physical land with borders and, you know, physical their currency. And they've got kings and priests and rulers. The church of Jesus Christ is a spiritual people. We don't have a nation, so to speak, on the earth. Or currency or a certain language or anything like that. But the way God has dealt with Israel, he's left Israel... Uh, he chose them to be a light to the Gentiles, and we can learn from them. We are to learn from God, from Israel and God's dealings with Israel and so forth. They were chosen to be a light to the Gentiles. That's what he calls them. They were chosen to be the race or the people of the nation through which God would bring the Messiah. He did. Jesus Christ, salvation is of the Jews. Okay? Jesus Christ came as a lion of the tribe of Judah distinctly Jewish. He was the Jewish Messiah and at the same time the Savior of the world. And he came through that line. The Lord says that uh, he made that covenant with Abraham before there was a nation of Israel. It came out of Abraham's loins and out of his descendancy and out of this covenant that God made with him. He said, through thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Thy seed, not seeds, plural, but seed, singular, speaking of Christ. And so we don't just take Israel and cast them aside and, and say there's, there's nothing here for us. We're the church. Well, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles, okay? The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles, and, and there's no longer Jew or Gentile in Christ. There's one body of Christ. But the nation of Israel and the history of Israel, there's much for us to, that God would have us to learn from that, from the Word of God, His dealings with Israel, and he still has a covenant with Israel. The Lord still has a plan for Israel. So much of the church, y'all, today is amillennialist, is kingdom now, is replacement theology, reconstructionist theology, and so forth. And it's not biblical. There's this, this theology or this theory that the church has replaced Israel. Therefore, there is no more Israel. God has nothing to do with Israel, the land, or the people, or his future. That's simply not true. You read through the Bible, Israel plays a prominent part all the way through. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody, if a, if a Jewish person is going to be saved, they still have to come through the blood of Jesus, mm -hmm. just like we do. Mm -hmm. Okay? But even the, the Lord speaks of his plan, and this will be a study for another day. But I want you to know that God is not through with Israel. And so when we're studying about Joshua and how Moses and the life of Moses and God's dealing with Israel or the tabernacle or the law. We're not under the law. We're under grace. I understand that. But the things we can glean from that, it typifies. There's types and shadows in the Old Testament and in the Old Testament covenant with Abraham and in the Jewish people and God's dealings with Israel and their failures and their successes in the promised land and the law and the tabernacle that we learn from to typify Christ, to typify the church, and so forth, and, and God's dealings with the church. And so I just want to read this from 1 
chapter 10. Now these things, and what, what Paul was talking about was his dealings with Israel, were our examples, he says. Now all these things happened unto them, speaking about Israel and coming out of Egypt and in the wilderness. All these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, our warning, our instruction is what that means, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So we don't just take Israel and say, God has nothing to do with them anymore. Therefore, I have nothing to do with them anymore as a, as a believer and a New Testament saint. We are. Hallelujah. But the, the, the Israel, God still has a plan. He is going to sit on the throne during the millennium in Jerusalem. Jesus, when he comes back again at the end of the tribulation period, and he's riding a white horse, and he, he puts down... Uh, Antichrist and all those armies that are coming against what? Jerusalem. He is going to defend that city and surviving Israel, Jewish people that are survived through tribulation, and God is going to spare many of them and supernaturally protect them. They're going to see the Lord. Every eye is going to see him. Every eye is going to see him. And they're going to look upon him whom they pierced, specifically Israel. They're going to look upon him whom they pierced. And it's like the light bulb comes on and it all floods into them. Oh my God. <laughs> we crucified our Lord. And they're going to be born again in a day. They're going to be saved. They're going to put their trust in Jesus. God still has a plan for Israel. Now it would be a grave mistake to say the church is Israel or the Israel is the church. They're not. They're two separate things. If somebody's born again, they're a Christian, Jew or Gentile. But the church is the church, and Israel is, is Israel. God has his way. He's going to bring it all together, okay? And we, we don't claim the promises of Israel. I always use this for an example. When, when Israelites went into the promised land, the Lord had told Joshua, here's the borders of the land, from the great sea to this, to that, to the mountains, to the plains. You know, all the borders he laid it out in Joshua, chapter 1, I think. And he says, every place where the sole of your foot treads, is yours. I've given it to you and to the nation of Israel as an inheritance. I can't claim that promise as a believer and say, you know what, I'm just going to march around South Baton Rouge, wherever the soles of my feet tread. God promised. It's, it's mine. And, and we can't do that. That's a promise to Israel. That was a promise. So there, there can be grave mistakes in confusing the church with Israel and Israel with the church. There can be great mistakes in saying God's through with Israel and has no plan for them. The scriptures are very, very clear on that. Okay? They're going to look upon him whom they pierce, and a nation will be born in a day. Having said all that, we want to learn by the Holy Ghost from the Word of God what, what is he teaching as a believer? What can I learn from Israel? What can I learn from God's covenant with them? And their failures and their successes and their how did God forgive them? How did, how did God uh, win victories for them and bring them in? And so I want to talk to you just symbolically. You probably know all these things, but just for a moment here today. When, it, when God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, Egypt to the church, okay, Egypt was a real land. It is a, a real country there. The nation of Israel was in bondage there. You know the story that God had made that covenant with Abraham. He even told Abraham, he says, your descendants are going to go into bondage. They're going to serve there in Egypt for 400 years. Afterwards, I'll bring them out to this land where he was making the covenant with Abraham. He, he did all that. It was a real
place in real bondage, and the Israelites became slaves under a Pharaoh that didn't know uh, Joseph or, or that immediate first generation that came in. You know the story. They became slaves. And, but to us, what does that say to us as a church? Okay, that's an interesting history. It's an amazing thing what God did. Is there something I can learn from that? Egypt for us, I believe, would represent sin. It would represent sin and the bondage of sin. It's a cruel bondage. Sin is a harsh taskmaster. You know, I know I've said this before, but maybe uh, maybe some of y'all have been saved for, for quite a while and you live for God and you're living for Jesus. You might run into one of your old buddies from high school many, many years ago. And they look terrible. You know what I mean? They look terrible. They don't know Jesus. And you can see the effects of sin on a person's life. And sin is a harsh taskmaster, is all I'm saying. The, uh, the way of transgressors is hard, the Bible says. Sin is a cruel taskmaster. So picture the Egyptians serving in slavery and bondage. It wasn't just like they were hired servants, you know, punching the time clock, and it was a hard job. job. It was cruel bondage. Sin does the same thing. Sin gets a hold. Sin takes, uh, I know we've talked about it, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. Mm -hmm. It's cruel. Sin is not on your side, okay? It's not helping you out. So Egypt would represent sin, like Pharaoh and his taskmasters. The Bible says that Jesus said, uh, answered them and said, verily, verily. When he says it twice, he's really, the, 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 the custom of saying things, verily, verily, he's really hammering a point in. Get this, is what he's saying. Truly, truly, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin. Now commit there, committed sin is the ongoing, like lifestyle and practice of sin, okay? Whoever commits sin as a pattern, that's their lifestyle, they're a sinner. They are a servant of sin. Sin is not serving them. They're not just fulfilling all their desires and everything I want sinful and look, I'm the king of my little throne here doing whatever I want. That individual is a servant of sin. Sinners are the servants of sin. And so Egypt is a great picture of that. And Israel's in, you know, being enslaved there represents that. It also represents, Egypt would represent in that slavery, we see in Israel their absolute helplessness to free themselves. There's nothing they could do. If God didn't help them, they weren't going to get out. They were already beat down, so to speak. They're beat down. They're under control. The, the control was complete. It had come over the people. They were under the authority of Egypt. There was no uprising or anything like that. They, they didn't have the ability to free themselves. They didn't have the ability to deliver themselves. They were powerless to. And so that's a good representation of sin. Mm -hmm. How many New Year's resolutions have people made? Boy, January 1st, 2020, I'm quit. I'm just talking about just in general, okay, in the world. I'm going to quit drinking. I know it's bad for me. Uh, I know it's, you know, bad for my health and uh, sometimes, you know, it gets the better of me and so forth. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit this. I'm going to quit that. And they can't do it. They can't do it. They might do it for a while. 
And maybe there's certain sin they can, uh, practices they can quit, but nobody can free themselves from sin. Whoever commits sin is the servant of sin. And so Egypt represents that. We see Moses represent the deliverer, the intercessor. We see Joshua, who represents, he's a type of Christ, okay? Joshua is not Christ, but he's a type of Christ. And he, he's the one that delivered the children of Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land. And y'all, the wilderness, and we're going to talk about this a little bit today. I believe the wilderness represents the world. I believe the wilderness represents the world personally. And I've studied different things. And you know, you can get, it's okay if you disagree with me on that. All right? This is not doctrine. It's what we can learn from these examples is, is all I'm saying. Egypt can represent sin and its, its power over us. And, and then God brings somebody out of sin. And maybe they go from the sin, their sin, and they're no longer, uh, they're forgiven of all their sins and they're cleansed as a believer. And yet they stay in the world. They stay in the world. And God never intended to bring people out of Egypt and to stay in the world. He intended to bring people out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. Okay? And so uh, we can see the world, the world represented, I believe, in the wilderness for a whole generation, 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness, so that whole first generation died in the wilderness. And uh, we, we see, I see the Jordan River as being, some people would say that that represents uh, heaven, like crossing the Jordan River and coming into, the, into heaven. And I'm not going to argue with that, but I personally believe crossing the Jordan River is coming into the fullness of everything Christ has for us. That would include heaven. So crossing the Jordan River, that's like passing from death to life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he whoever heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. How do we do that? Through faith in Jesus, it was in a specific moment. You don't gradually become a Christian. You're saved, I mean, you're lost, and then you're saved. Mm -hmm. There's a moment when you cried out to the Lord and said, save me. Mm -hmm. That's like crossing over the Jordan River. That's like passing from death to life. New creation in Christ, a new creature. The Bible describes it in Colossians as we were translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. He translated us. He picked us up. Josh would be like that, that, that deliverer, I mean that, that savior that transported the people from here's Egypt way back here, here's the wilderness. We got to get across this Jordan River and into the fullness of all that the Lord has for us. And they crossed over into Christ and then all the fullness that comes with that. But I can tell you this, y'all, this is really kind of a, the heart of what I believe the Lord would have us to hear this morning. God does not ever intend to save an individual and let him wander around. Like, okay, my sin's forgiven. When I die, I'm going to heaven. But until then, I'm just going to kind of aimlessly wander around and in the wilderness. The wilderness is not a place for the believer. I know that I've shared it more than you probably care to hear, but I'm, I'm glad the Lord doesn't let me forget it. I wandered in the wilderness as a believer for my college years and the end of my high school and into college for about five years of my life. And God never intends for 
trusted in the Lord. He was my Savior. But I was not in the promised land in the sense of the fullness of what Christ had for me. It was like he was ahead of me, but I wasn't there. And I was content at that time to stay wandering around in the wilderness. A lot of sin went on there as well. Uh, I, could, I can't say I was in bondage to it, but, but uh, the Lord had no intention for his people to wander around in the wilderness. So I want you to think about this just a moment. We're using this story of Israel right here, this historical account of Israel. It was after the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Amen. With the mighty hand of God, the Bible says. After he parted the Red Sea and brought them across on dry ground and drowned the Egyptians that were chasing them, their tormentors, okay, their adversary, he drowned them all, every one of them, in the sea behind them. What a deliverance. They're out of Egypt. They're, all their enemies were drowned in the sea. They crossed on dry ground. The sea closed back on their enemies. After that, after the Lord uh, gave them the law and the tabernacle and graciously gave all that to them, after the Lord fed them in the wilderness for 40 years and water came from a rock and took care of them, they even defeated some enemies in the wilderness. After that first generation died in unbelief, after the Lord dried up the Jordan River and they crossed over and were in the promised land just on the brink of it, then the Lord says to them, Today, I've rolled away the reproaches of Egypt from off of you. I think there's something significant about that. He didn't just say it 40 years before when they came across the Red Sea. He didn't just say it when they wandered around in the wilderness. And I can't say I have a total grasp on it, but I do believe that there was something very significant to them coming over. They're getting ready to fight enemies, okay, in the promised land. God's going to deliver them. God's going to win the victory at every battle for them. He promises to do that at the Lebanon. We wouldn't think of, okay, they cross the Jordan River. The first thing facing them is what? Jericho and the walled cities. The huge and mighty city. That's the first thing when they cross the land. We would think we need to make preparations for battle. We've got to figure out a way to do this. God says, I want you to circumcise all the males. This is not how you would prepare for battle. It's a surgical procedure. Uh, what had happened is all the, all the, the initial old adults and men of war had been circumcised. They came out of Egypt. But the generation that was born <coughs> in the wilderness, and that was a 40-year period, and grew up in the wilderness and encamped around different places, they had not been circumcised. And the Lord says, I want you to put those across the river, they cross it, put the 12 stones up as a memorial, and I want you to, Joshua, make some sharp knives, I want all the males, uh, men of war, to be circumcised first. This is significant. I believe it's very significant that we would have said, that's not how you prepare for battle. It doesn't make sense. You're wounding the people. You know, what if we're ambushed or something? They, they couldn't have defended themselves. And then they kept the Passover and ate unleavened bread. This is how they prepared to walk into the promised land and for God to give them victory in the fight. God doesn't do things the way that the natural mind and world would think of doing things. That's one of the things I think is very important that we see. 
Joshua had to obey the Lord in this thing. He required it of them. He required it. He commanded Joshua, you have these men circumcised because it represented, y'all, what does circumcision represent? If you want to turn with me in your Bibles, you can. John, Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. God is restating his covenant with Abraham, with Abraham, and you know that eventually Israel would come from his lineage. Genesis 17, 9 through 13. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is the covenant which you shall keep between, between me and you, and thy seed after thee. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Period. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in a house or bought with money, or any stranger which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with thy money, must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So you had this whole generation of Hebrew men that were part of this covenant that had not been circumcised. And the Lord says, you're going to do this, Joshua. These men are going to be circumcised. And so individually, these men, even though they hadn't committed all the sins of maybe their, their forefathers and so forth, they needed to be circumcised. Circumcision represented something spiritual. It represented God's covenant between God and the nation of Israel. And Abraham, that Abrahamic covenant, it represented that. It represented a separation unto the Lord. And I think this is, how does it speak to the church? How does it speak to us? It represented a peculiar people. The Bible says they were to be a peculiar people. In 1 Peter it says, you are a chosen generation, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That you should, it's believers, okay, Christians. That you should show forth the praise of him who is called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There is to be a separation among the people of God. If we're going to go out into this, this lost world, they were getting ready to go into the promised land and fight enemies and then possess it. If we're going to go out into this world, we have to be separated unto God. If you and I blend in as believers, and I did it for five years, it can be done. God won't let us stay here, by the way. But if you and I blend in with this world and the workplace, and we remember we did a whole series recently on taking a stand for the Lord and so forth. If we blend in, we're not going to have the authority and power that God intends for us to walk in. We're going to be stepped on. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, the Bible says salt is good, but salt, if it's lost its savor, it's that flavor that makes it worth anything. If salt has lost its savor, it's henceforth good for what? Nothing. Nothing. And he, he says, you're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. You are. But if you as a salt of the earth, as a believer, have lost your saltiness, in other words, if you and I have lost our testimony for Christ, if we have lost what makes salt salt in the first place and of any value, it's good for nothing. Men aren't going to appreciate you being a compromising Christian. You're not serving God by doing that. You're not going to be forwarding and prospering your own life. There's no benefit. It's good for nothing. Okay? If you're going to live for God, live for God. Live for him privately.
and live for him publicly. If you're not going to live for God, then don't live for God and stop saying that you're a Christian. Stop telling people you're a Christian when it's convenient and when it feels good and it eases your conscience and then at other times, you know, hiding it under a bushel. I'm preaching to myself as well. If we're going to go forth, there has to be a separation unto us. People have to know, and I can tell you today and this day and this week, okay, it costs you something to know Jesus. It's always cost something. It costs us more today. It costs us personally more to take a stand for Christ. I say it all the time. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm not talking about inviting trouble that's not needed, that we have to be wise. But I, there is a boldness in the Holy Ghost that we're going to go out in His name and bear His reproach outside the camp like we talked about. And circumcision for the children of Israel represented a separation unto God. We're not like all these idolatrous people in this nation that God has given us in the promised land. We're going to have to fight them, okay? We're not to make leagues with them. We're not to intermarry with them. We're not to adopt their customs. We're not to adopt their gods and their idols. We are to be separated from them. Now, our separation is, is, is the Holy Ghost in us. There's a holiness in our lives, not an arrogance. It's not a religious uh, kind of piety where we just frown our noses at everybody. It's a love that causes us to roll up our sleeves and we go talk to people that don't know Jesus. They may curse us out and spit in our face. And we wipe the spit off and shake the dust off and we'll go to the next one. That's, that's the type of separation, but we're not what they are. And I'm not going to pretend like I am. God doesn't want us to pretend like we are. He said, you were once darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You were darkness, now you're light out in the Lord. Walk and live, he's simply saying, like you're in the light. A lot of scriptures that go along with that. And so Joshua had to do this. He had to obey the Lord. God required of him, you circumcise these men that are not. It's signifying something, a separation unto the Lord. It had to be done before they would possess the land, dwell in the land, enjoy the land, win the victories over their enemies. Um, and it had to be done even before the Lord would fully and finally roll away the reproaches of Egypt from off of them. What's the word reproach mean? It means a shame or a disgrace. That's what a reproach is. It's a shame or a disgrace. The Bible says, I'll just give an example. Remember, uh, Jacob had two wives, Rachel, who he really loved, and Leah. And he had these two wives, and, and Leah bare children, and Rachel didn't. God had shut up her womb. She was barren. She cried out to the Lord after Leah had, had several children, and the Lord blessed her and opened up her womb. She had a son, Joseph. Okay, And she said, this day the Lord has rolled reproach from off of my life. The Lord did it. It was a shame and a disgrace to her that she couldn't have children. The Lord rolled that shame away and that reproach. In Nehemiah's day, Nehemiah was part of the captivity, right? A Jewish man, a cupbearer to the king in Persia. And he gets word, how are things back in Jerusalem? He has some visitors that came from there. Oh, it's terrible. The city lays in waste. The walls are ruined. Uh, there's no, it's just, it's just a shame. There's no glory in Israel and so forth. And Nehemiah was immediately burdened and asked God if he could be used to be part of what? Taking away the reproach of, of Jerusalem. Getting the walls built. Getting it a defined, separated place 
the temple inside there, the people of God inside that city. He wanted to be used by the Lord to remove that reproach. And so reproach simply means a shame or disgrace. And uh, Gilgal became a place of consecration. Gilgal became a place where, where these men were circumcised before they went any further to be separated unto the Lord. And, and y'all, they had to be separated from Egypt. They had to be separated from the people of Egypt, from the gods of Egypt, from the way of life in Egypt. Don't forget, it was their fathers, okay, and parents. This, this generation that was circumcised once they crossed the Jordan River, their parents, not long after they came out of Egypt, wanted to go back. Their parents said, let's go back, let's make us gods. And they made the golden calf, or Aaron compromised horribly and made this golden calf. And the people rose up and committed all this idolatrous worship and said, this be our gods. Oh, Israel, that brought us out of Egypt. They wanted to go back. They wanted to go back. They at least had a little feet, fish and it says leeks and garlics and stuff to eat there. We want to go back there. This generation that crossed the Jordan River, they need to be separated from that. That all had to go. And I know it was just symbolic. The circumcision is a physical thing. But it was serious to God. And he required it. And it was a covenant. It was a memorial. He says it to Abraham is a token of the covenant that is between me and you. And they needed to be separated from all that. Okay, and I want to read this scripture from Romans uh, chapter 2, 29. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. What is he saying here? He's saying real circumcision, when we're going to spiritualize it now, how does it apply to us, is of the heart. Is of the heart. A circumcised body with an uncircumcised heart does no good. It's of no value. Okay? Being circumcised in the flesh and not separating yourself unto the Lord spiritually is of no value. That's all we're saying here this morning. And they, these men had to be separated. And a, and a man, you and I, and women and believers, we have to be separated unto the Lord in our hearts. Amen? In our hearts. And, and be separated to God from all that's going on around us. Paul says this in Galatians, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. And so, it's not just a symbol, y'all. We have to really be separated unto the Lord. We need to be separated unto God in our heart of hearts. And I want to read just a couple of scriptures here about, about the Lord rolling away the reproach. That's how we open this morning. Psalm 102, verse 8. My, my enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. Another psalm. As with the, as with the sword in my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? Psalm 74, 10. O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Psalm 119. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. And we see here that David is calling out to the Lord. If my reproach is going to be removed, the Lord has to do it. If my shame is going to be removed, the Lord has to do it. And so, y'all, let's just bring this to a close, that Israel...
coming across that Jordan River and being separated unto God. Y'all, there's much in Christ that he has for us, I believe, and we talk about it all the time, that we are not yet walking in. Some people in this room, some believers across the, the globe, are obviously further along than others. But I'll say this to you, to the young people here, to everyone in here, God did not save us to have us then wander around the wilderness. He didn't bring us out of Egypt to then say, okay, do your best out in this, this wilderness. Very, very specific plan of God. When he made his covenant with Abraham, way back 400 and something years before, him crossing the Jordan River, he said, your people are going to go, your descendants will go into slavery. I will bring them out. He's going to do it. I will. I will bring them out with the high hand of God. And I will bring them into this land that I have promised. The land that what flows with milk and honey. I will let you possess the gates of your enemies and inhabit the houses of your enemies. That, that promised land was the ultimate intent of God. It wasn't just getting them out of slavery. Nobody wants to be in slavery. Thank God he brings us out of slavery and bondage of sin. But he does not then intend for us, okay, the, the curse of sin basically is broken from off my life. I'm born again. Now, oh, I got that weight off. But Jesus says, take my yoke and learn from me. Mm -hmm. We're instantly to go. There shouldn't be an in-between time. It doesn't have to take 40 years of wandering in the wilderness to get out of this Egypt and into the promised land. It doesn't have to take that for a believer. God wants to bring us right in, right into the fullness. And then we can enjoy the Lord and, and prosper in Christ. And yes, there'll be enemies that we fight in the promised land, but don't ever forget, as a believer, we're always fighting from a place of victory. It's already a place of victory. The victory is assured in the Lord, but it's assured as we walk in Christ, as we walk in the Spirit, we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. As we trust God, as we believe God. And so, y'all, that, that Jordan River represents to me crossing over it and coming into the fullness of all that the Lord has. And I can stand up here and tell you that I have experienced much in the Lord, but without question, I can also say I believe, I know, that there is much more. And I say it all the time. I don't apologize for saying it, but I say it all the time. There's, God wants us to walk in the fullness of what he has for us. Y'all, we would have never, other than reading the Bible that says in the last days perilous times will come. We get it and we understand it. How many of us thought five years ago, five months ago, you know what I'm saying? How many of us thought that we would be staring down a gun barrel right now? Perilous times that we're in as Christians, as a nation and, and Christians. I don't know that we would have. We knew perilous times were coming. We knew it in our theology and we believed it. We saw signs of it. But I just don't ever... I didn't think it was going to be like, bam. And it seems like that. And all of that said, the Lord has, still wants us to walk in the fullness of his peace. Right now, today. If I'm not having peace, it's not my circumstances' fault. It's not the election's fault. It's not Dominion uh, software's fault. If I'm not having peace right now, 
That's because I haven't pressed in to the heart of God to receive that peace from the Lord. If I'm not walking in the fullness of his joy, he said the joy of the Lord is our strength. There's a strength in being joyful in Jesus Christ. There's a strength to it. There's a power in it. This world didn't give me that joy. and The world can't take it away. This world never gave me that peace. My election results never gave me that peace. If it did, then I'd place my peace in the wrong thing. My joy and my peace comes from my God and my relationship with my God and my uh, security and safety in the rock of my salvation. I've got you. That's what he's saying. He's saying to Gary and Angel, I've got you. He's saying to Peter and Mom, he's saying to Chris, I have you. I have you in my hand. My joy needs to come from that. My peace needs to come from that. And, and I want, there's a fullness of that that is available for the newest believer that just got saved yesterday or today and for the old saint that's been walking with the Lord for 60 years. There is a fullness that's in front of us that God wants us to walk in. And so I want to close with a passage that we read back in Joshua chapter 5 where we, where we started. <laughs> Verses 11 and 12. And God, now, now Joshua did obey the Lord. He did what he was supposed to do every step of the way. Okay? He did what he was supposed to do, and God prospered him. They, 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 the males were circumcised. They kept the Passover. They waited until they were healed up before they went to battle. But it says, right after they did these things, they circumcised and they kept the Passover in the new land. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow, after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day, and the manna ceased on the morrow, after they had eaten the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna anymore, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. What are you saying? He brought them out of Egypt, 40 years because of their own unbelief, they wandered in the wilderness. When they crossed over that Jordan River and obeyed the Lord in the things that he had called them to do, they, they didn't eat that anymore. They ate of the fruit of the land. They ate of the fruit of the promised land that he had promised them. them. And y'all, there's fruit in Christ that he wants us to eat of, that he wants us to partake of, the fruit of the Spirit, of course, in our lives, but the enjoying Christ Feasting upon the Lord, feeding upon the Lord, worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth, coming into the secret places of the Lord where we meet with Him and we have that peace. And in the midst of troublesome times, we're not an ostrich who sticks its head in the sand and pretends like there's no problems. We're very aware of the problems. There are grievous troubles all around us, but our God is greater still. And he wants us to eat the fruit of the land. In other words, eat the fruit that he has for us in the promised land in Christ. Heaven awaits us. We know that. But I, don't, I think the promised land is more than just heaven. I think the promised land is the fullness of what we have in Jesus. He that spared not his own son. I'm closing to you, Tom. He that spared not his own son, but offered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? If he already gave his son to die on a cross when we didn't even know Jesus, and he did, 
fight, or when it's time to forbear, when it's time to, it's always time to pray, we need wisdom, we need strength, we need courage. We need to not become scared, we need to not become cynical, we need to not become defensive and curl up in a ball. We need to know what to do and be empowered by the Lord to do it. There's a fullness of walking in Christ that he is going to show himself mighty in this hour. I promise you, our God is going to show himself mighty in this hour. And I want him to do it through my life. And I want him to do it through your life and through this church. And I'm not selfish and said, hey, I only have to be a do it through every believer in this country, every believer, believer on the planet. But our God is going to show himself mighty and I want to be on the front lines. I want to be part of what's going on. He is going to give us what we need. We need to be separated unto the Lord. If there are worldly things in your life, put them out. Don't wander around in the world, in the wilderness anymore. If they're too hard for you to lay down, come to the altar and say, God, take them from me. I know this is of the world. I'm not a Christian. This is not should not be part of my life, but it is part of my life. Forgive me and strengthen me and take it from me. And he will. Father, we come before you in the mighty name of Jesus. And Lord, I know in this message, Lord, was kind of all over the place, Lord, but I do believe the promised land for believers is the fullness of the life that you have for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, you never brought us out of Egypt and out of sin and its bondage in order to for your children to walk in the wilderness and live and die in the wilderness. You brought us out of Egypt and sin that we would walk in the fullness of the Holy Ghost, the fullness of the Word of God, the fullness of your love, the fullness of your peace, the fullness of your joy, the fullness of Christian maturity, the fullness of our fellowship with you, the fullness of your power. And God, I pray that you empty us of ourselves and fill us with your spirit. I pray, God, that you would forgive us of our worldliness. I pray you forgive me of my worldliness. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us, God, of our spiritual laziness. Forgive us of our fear and being so timid that we have hidden our light under a bushel. Forgive us if we're salt who's lost its savor and we're good for nothing. I pray that you would fill us back up and make us that salt and light and you would use us, God, to bring yourself glory in this hour. I pray you strengthen your people. I pray you have mercy upon us. I pray you protect us, God, from our enemies that reproach us and that are, are sworn to our destruction, God. I thank you that you're greater than those enemies, greater seasons in us than he that's in the world. We love you, Lord God, and we call upon you today. Make us what you call us to be. Make us what you saved 